Would you please stand for the reading of the word? Our text is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while they do good. This is the word of God. You may... Uh, Almighty God, we just pray for your spirit to be in us, to be with Kyle as he preaches, that we would hear the word of God with the power that you um, put into it, the power of your own son and your spirit, which makes it alive to our hearts and in our lives. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you. You can all be seated. So good to be with you all this morning. I'm just excited to have, again, um, Joe mentioned, so I'm Kyle, if you're new, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I'm primarily the one that teaches, um, but we have some other great pastors, Joe is one of them, and he's going to be starting that wonderful um, group that's going to start meeting tonight. It's basically a fundamentals class. I can really only deal with so much once a week in 30 or 40 minutes um, from the pulpit, so we want to supply you all with resources that will teach you what Christianity is. Um, what we believe, because um, we know that we need to fill in the gaps of what might be missing here on Sunday. So that's one of the reasons why we do small groups, provides fellowship, but also further understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and what a great opportunity that will be. I hope that if, um, um, if you're um, wondering more about this, or just want to, you've been a Christian for a while, you want to sharpen up your understanding of, of scripture and of doctrine, it's going to be a great place. He's going to be going through the epistles, um, and we're in, in, in an epistle right now. We're going through the epistle of 1 Peter. All an epistle is is a letter. It's just an ancient Near Eastern word or, or an, old, an old ancient word, excuse me, for a letter. It just is a letter. It's the letters of the New Testament. Um, much of the New Testament was written by the apostles in letter form to the early church when they were asking questions about doctrine and wondering how they should meet together and what it means to be a Christian um, more fully. And that's, that occasioned much of the writing in the New Testament. The apostles would write letters. And the apostle Peter, in particular, is writing a letter to a broad spectrum of churches, not any one church, um, where other letters in the New, New Testament were more localized, uh, uh, the Philippi and Ephesus, these different towns and cities um, in Greece and other places where the, the letter was more localized. Peter was written to a spectrum of churches that were under persecution and were going through suffering. And we're going through this to deal with this topic. How does a Christian experience suffering? How do we process it? What are we to make of it? 
And that's why we're doing this. And we're almost done. We're just about um, starting chapter 5, which is the last chapter. It's a shorter chapter. So we'll probably be in this series probably only for maybe two or three more weeks, and then we'll move on. And I hope that you've been enjoying it and that God has um, just been encouraging you if you're going through some kind of trial in your life. There's something really fascinating, I think, about this passage in particular um, that you might not have picked up on. This is actually something I learned for the first time this week when I was examining this passage, is that right here in all of the New Testament, um, except for right here in this passage, um, God is never called the creator. The title creator is never given to God in all the New Testament. There are many passages that speak of God as the creating agent, the one who created all things, but his title is never creator, like Lord or Jesus or Christ or the different titles that we see throughout the Father, right? Father is given um, our Father who art in heaven. It's a title. But creator, it's not our creator who art in heaven. Um, The title creator is never given in the New Testament except for right here. Um, John chapter 1, if you recall, talks about God as the creating agent. So we know that the New Testament affirms um, that God is the creator. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Going going to great lengths to explain that it was God that is responsible for the world around us. Colossians chapter 1 um, reiterates this. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, heaven is like the galaxies, the stars, that's what that refers to. All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, so even all the little microbes that we can't see all around us, um, these things were, um, God was their architect, he was their creator, he engineered all of it. Um, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And finally, Romans chapter 1 even talks about this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. So this passage is saying we should know that there is a God because of the created thing, because of the world around us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And how has God shown us that he exists? Good question. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. The created world should point us, according to Paul in Romans, that point us to the fact that there is a God, and to deny that would be to deny our own sense, to deny the reality of what we see around us. He is the one that made these things, that all of these things point to. So in all of these texts, God's the agent of creation, Surely we can see that, that God is the one making it, making the universe and the world around us and even ourselves. But here alone, God is given the title creator. And Peter seems to be using this title as a source of encouragement for suffering Christians. There's something about God as creator that should help us in our suffering. Because he puts this word, this title, right in the middle of probably the longest, the most extended passage that he writes in this letter about suffering. He writes about many things. The the main theme of the letter is suffering. But he writes a very long passage, verses 12 through 19, all about suffering. And he encourages Christians by calling God creator. What is it about God as creator 
that should comfort our suffering hearts when we face trial? That's the question that I hope to aim this morning. He could have used the term father, right? A faithful father, trust in a faithful father in suffering, pointing to his paternal affection and care. He could have used bridegroom. Bridegroom is used in other places. Savior is used, Lord. And all of these, I think, speak into our suffering as well. But Peter didn't choose these. Instead, the suffering servant of Jesus Christ is told to entrust their soul to the creator. What about God being creator comforts you? How can we think about this this morning? So I want to do that. I want to ask first the question, why do we have such a hard time entrusting our soul to the creator? And I also want to demonstrate how God as creator answers that difficulty. Does that make sense? All right, good, let's go. Why is it so difficult for us to entrust our soul? Scripture says here, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. Why is it so hard for us to do that? It is hard for us to do that. Can I get an amen? Amen. He wouldn't be saying it. He wouldn't be telling us to entrust our soul to a faithful creator unless it were difficult for them to do that. Does that make sense? So why is it so difficult? The first thing I want to point out, the reason why I think it's so difficult, number one, is that the soul, your soul, your innermost being, who you are at your core, is the most precious thing that you have in your life. It is the most valuable possession that you have. Greater than relationships, greater than finances, greater than status, your soul is the most important possession in your life, and you know it. You see, the text reads, entrust your soul, not your loot, (laughs) right? Not your possessions, not even your relationships. It says, entrust you, yourself, your innermost being, your heart. You know, the word entrust is an interesting word in Scripture. It means, it refers almost to like a deposit that you would make at a bank. Um, And the ancient Near East had special significance for this term because suppose you lived back then, they didn't have banks like we have, right? or institutions that could keep your valuables safe. So suppose that's you 2,000 years ago, and you're traveling. You're traveling a great distance, and you want to make sure that your stuff is safe. You don't, you don't want all your finances or your cattle or your sheep stolen. So oftentimes what they would do is they would put it in someone's care. They would entrust what's most precious to them to someone that was able to t- take care of it and to keep it safe. So you would entrust or deposit this these things to someone's care. Friends, you might have a safety deposit box at a bank this morning, right? Or maybe just a simple checking account or savings account. Now, I remember some of, some of our, our grandparents, right? They didn't have those things. They stuffed their cash under their mattress, right? That, that was safe enough. That was impenetrable, that place. But as we kind of learned about fire and thieves and stuff, we, we decided that that's not the safest place in the world for our for our cash. So we open bank accounts. We entrust something that's valuable to us to the care of someone else. And why do we do this? We entrust an institution to care for them because we cannot care for it in the same way they can. At least that's what we think. And I know some of you out there, ah, the banks, government, they're all corrupt. And all right. But in theory, right, that, that's, what, that's why we do these things. Something more powerful than us is caring 
for something most valuable to us. I'll say that again. Something more powerful than us is caring for, protecting something most valuable to us. Friends, doesn't suffering have a way of reminding us just how valuable and fragile our lives are? Even if it's not your health, someone else's health. A loss of a relationship, a death. Maybe you're perfectly healthy and you have lots of money in the bank, but suffering comes in many different shapes and forms. And for some reason, it still has this way of reminding us just how fragile we are. How at any moment we could lose the most important thing in our life, our own soul. It reminds us, too, not only of how important and how valuable life is, but how incapable we are of holding it firm. How inadequate we are to preserve it. Isn't that true? How many people can prevent your own death? Let me know. What's your secret? I don't care how much how much soy you eat or non-GMO foods you ingest, right? I'm not dissing that. I think that's great. What I'm saying, though, is we all still are inadequate to preserve our own life. We are all heading towards the grave. And I know that that is grim and discouraging, but friends, we all know that, so what do we do about it? When we suffer, who do we trust our soul with? God is not simply a king. He's not simply a tough guy, a strong friend. You see, he's not simply a bridegroom. God is creator. You see, we're given this this word on purpose because God as creator teaches us something, that the one that can speak something out of nothing is the one that can be trusted with your soul. The one who can create the world with a word is the one that can be trusted in the most harrowing times in your life. He is the same one. He is sufficient to preserve for you what is the most valuable thing that you have, and that's your own soul. Friends, this sort of implies something, doesn't it? Our souls are not safe in our hands. If the Bible is saying, entrust your soul to someone else, the implication is that if we keep it to ourself, if we're the ones to keep our soul guarded, then we fail. Then it falls. And suffering reminds us of this. But God, the creator, can sufficiently preserve the most important thing in your life, and that's your heart. God can do that because he's the creator. He's the one that made you and formed you, and fashioned you into his... What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou considerest him? But For you fashioned him a little lower than the angels, and you put all things in subjection under his feet. What is man? God the creator did that for you. He formed you. You see, your girlfriend or your boyfriend didn't create you. Your mom or your dad didn't create you. Jobs didn't create you. God created you. So if those things fail, if those things leave, if those things die, the one who never dies, the creator, still holds you fast. That's the promise. We're not alone facing some meaningless trauma. 
Peter reminds us, entrust what's most precious to you to the Creator. When we face loss, it's more than loss that we face. I want to talk about this for a second. The soul is ultimately what is most on the line when we go through suffering and loss. When we face loss, it's more than the thing that we lost that's on the line. That's why suffering is so grievous and so difficult and so heavy. Because it's about more than just the thing that we lost. It's about something about us at our core. We're losing ourselves. How many people have ever felt like that when going through great suffering? It's more than just I lost this thing. I'm losing me. I'm, go- I'm heading somewhere that's out of my control. What's so traumatic is in these events is we start wondering who we are, where we are, why we are, all these questions. And if we lose our own soul, don't we know with Scripture, what does it profit a man if I gain the whole world and lose this? It just doesn't matter. My barns, my grain, my, my cattle, my money, my, my, all of it, just everything gets called into question. It just doesn't matter, and we know it. So what's the point? Are we alone facing some sort of meaningless trauma? Peter reminds us, entrust what's most precious to you to the Creator, the all-powerful one who speaks something out of nothing. Ex, the Latin is ex nihilo, out of nothing. The Word of God speaks something out of nothing, and He can speak something out of your nothing. Isn't that true? Our Creator, our God, can speak something out of your nothing. He can do it, and he will do it. So scripture says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. But it can be difficult for another reason to do this. Suffering seems incongruous. It seems final. It seems meaningless. Let me explain. Scripture, be reminded, says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to you, that that you may also rejoice and be glad When it comes, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, Peter's saying, if you suffer as a Christian, the spirit of God rests on you, so rejoice. Isn't that bewildering? Isn't that fast? Couldn't God have chosen something better for the spirit of God to rest upon us? Why suffering? Why not money? Why not accolades? Why not glory? Right? Why not comfortable movie nights? You know, right? Like, why this? Why suffering? Suffering seems so incongruous and final. You know what the word, I use that word sometimes, and and I like that word. You know what it means, the word incongruous? It means not in harmony or keeping with the surroundings or other aspects of something. Not in harmony or keeping with your surroundings. Like, wearing shorts in Antarctica is incongruous. Right? Like, it's cold. Put a coat on, right? Put some pants on. That's incongruous. The fact that we have to be told not to be surprised by suffering implies that we are surprised by suffering. Isn't it a surprise to you that you're surprised when you suffer? Isn't it true that we often are shocked when extreme suffering comes our way? as if suffering is not supposed to exist at all. 
when it comes, we know it comes, we know it comes to people around us, but when it comes to us, it's so disorienting. Peter has to tell them, don't be surprised. And it's surprising to me that he tells us that we should not be surprised. Does that make sense? Why are we so surprised by suffering? I think there's two reasons. Because suffering is incongruous. It's out of harmony with God's created intention. And it's also seemingly out of harmony with redemption. Let me explain to you what I mean. Deep, deep in your gut, you know that you're not supposed to die. Deep in your gut, you know that death was never supposed to be a part of life. That's why it's so weird. That's why it's so mysterious. You might not have ever thought about it like this, but the reason death is so traumatic and dramatic and difficult for us to bear is because it's foreign. God did not create you to die. So when we do die, it's surprising. It's shocking to us that wars happen, that wives leave husbands and husbands leave wives, that unfaithfulness occurs. We're shocked by this when it happens to us because it wasn't supposed to happen that way. Does that make sense? God did not create this world for that purpose. And deep in your heart, because God made you in his image, you know that. So if you're ever surprised by suffering, it should point you to the fact that God made you not to go through it, but to endorse, to, to endure paradise, to endure goodness in his glory and his pleasure. It should clue us into the fact that something is terribly wrong, that should not have happened, right? So suffering should surprise us, but it shouldn't surprise us. It should surprise us because we bear the image of God. It should be shocking to us that anyone would ever say no to God. It should be shocking to us that because we said, not, not shocking because we said no to God, but it should be shocking that we did say no to God and that we died because of it. You see, these things should not have been. It shouldn't surprise us because life is realized in relationship with God. So the sin that separates us from him is the consequence of all the tragic events of life. It's be, in other words, it's because we live in a fallen world that was never supposed to be fallen. That's why it's so surprising and not surprising at the same time. But, but doesn't it like, okay, that makes sense. I get it logically. I don't know that I, that I agree with you yet there. But, um, but what about this whole redemption thing? Shouldn't that mean that when I get saved, that no more suffering happens? God's, God's fixed everything. Sins are forgiven. He's given me his righteousness. Yet I still die, and people die around me, and Christians still sin, and they have their, hus their husbands or their wives leave them. Isn't suffering even all the more incongruous in redemption? If suffering is the product of being outside of relationship with God, why do we, who have been reunited with God, still endure it? See, it's incongruous. It's surprising. We're told not to be surprised, as if something strange were happening to you. And I think very often in my life, that's exactly how I feel. They're, they're explaining my soul. 
when, when I hit the wall in life and something happens, it is so, in my mind, unbelievable, out of left field. Why did this happen? When we're faced with loss, I think it's true. When we're faced with loss and trial, we can't see past the end of our own nose. You know what I mean by that? It's all, it's all we see. It's how we interpret everything else in life. Right? We call everything into question, even our own purpose. We can't see why, so we conclude that there is no why. Right? There's, there's no reason, so therefore it's pointless. It's meaningless. The suffering I'm enduring is just without point. So you know what suffering becomes in our life? Our Lord. It becomes what defines us, what explains us. If there's no reason for it, then it is the reason. See what I mean? So it becomes our directing God. But the Bible, instead of this, tells us to rejoice that there is meaning and that, that, the, that you can see past the end of your own nose, not for the sake of suffering, but because of God's redemptive purpose in suffering. You see, God uses what should not have been here. He uses the foreign invader, that same suffering, that same tragic chaos, to be carried by Christ, to endure the suffering you endure so that you'll never have to endure it again once you're grafted into him by faith. Isn't that great? God as creator reminds us that suffering is not outside of his control and it is not arbitrary. It's not random. You see, um, in Eastern culture... They believe that God, that good and evil exist perfectly together forever and ever. And there will always be a tension between good and evil. The message of scripture is that in, in the beginning, God who is good, and in the end, God who is good, and in the middle, he created people with a will that rejected him, that fought against him. That's the origin of the evil, but God is victorious over it, quells it, finishes it, ends it. Isn't that great? That's the message of Christianity. That's the message of the cross. The problem of your trial, the problem of your suffering, Jesus faced that problem for us on the cross, died for it, so that he could give you a victorious new life. Amen? Amen. But why else is it all so difficult to hand our suffering, to hand our souls over to God, our creator? Well, I think number three, the te our text tells us, is that suffering, quite frankly, is humiliating. Right? Did you see this? If anyone suffers as a Christian, do not be ashamed. You know what this tells me? And I think this is true. For some reason, when I'm going through suffering, I'm embarrassed. I'm, in, I'm ashamed. Isn't that weird? I've experienced this myself in life, where I feel this sense of, like, I, I don't want people to know that I hurt, that something was lost. We don't want people to pay attention to us. We want to be around other humans, but we don't want them to talk to us. Isn't that true? C.S. Lewis said that. So we just sort of hide mostly. We hide it. I'm fine. I'm good. Right? Why, why are we like this? <clears throat> I think partly we feel humiliated, not because we're embarrassed that something bad happens. I think it's because 
it's because there was nothing we could do about it. I'm just trying to examine like the psychology of this and why on earth would we be ashamed when going through suffering? You know, in the context, Peter is telling Christians not to feel ashamed when they're being made fun of because of their faith. They're mocked because of their faith. And this was a culture where kind of fitting in was even more important than it is now. So like social shaming was a big deal back then. We're kind of like, you know, modern and free, and we like to think that that's less of an issue here. And maybe it is a little bit. But back then it was a very big deal. To be rejected by society and family would have produced shame, an internal shame. Shame, You know that shame is the feeling... All that is, is it's the feeling of being rejected or falling short because of something about you, right? You're being shamed because of something about you. You feel shame because you feel like you have fallen short for some reason. It's this message that we just don't have what it takes. That's what shame is. And a situation, because of this, is outside of our control. I can't help that I'm short and stocky, right? Like, there's nothing, it's outside of my control, so I might feel ashamed about the way I look, right? So we go on these vigorous exercise plans, and we eat the right foods, just so we don't have to be ashamed of being at the beach. Isn't that true? We do this. This is kind of a small example of this, but this is kind of what happens to us. We go through things, so that's what shame is. It's a situation outside of control. We feel like we've fallen short, we're not respected. The fact that a traumatic event happened seems to tell us that we are not in control. Is that true? We can't control it. And we're ashamed of that. I couldn't do anything. Why couldn't I do anything? How about this one? Because usually this is the next step in the logic. Maybe God couldn't do anything. Maybe he could have, but he didn't want to. Maybe he's evil. You see, that this is what our mind starts to do. You see, we become ashamed. God as creator, friends, reminds us that nothing is outside of his control. That there is nothing to be ashamed of. Because it is not God against pain. God is Lord. And he uses the pain oftentimes that we cause because we live in a fallen world. He uses that pain to rescue us. Isn't that great? To take our shame, to erase it, and to make us new. That's what he does. But finally, I think it's difficult to entrust our soul to a faithful creator. Because suffering is purging. Let me explain this. Verse 17. If you're a Christian, I'm going to just... I'm going to speak the truth right now to you. Are you ready for it? If you're a Christian, if you're going through suffering, it is to make you more like Jesus. That is absolutely one of the reasons. It's not the only reason God allows suffering in your life. But it is absolutely one of the reasons that God has allowed it to happen in your life. Because he wants you to be more like Jesus Christ. And let me prove prove it to you. For it is time... For judgment to begin at the household of God. That's the church. That's God's people. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous, God's people, are scarcely saved, what will, be the, what, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God uses suffering to purge the Christian, to test the Christian, 
to make the Christian more and more like Jesus. That's, did you notice earlier in the text it talked about a fiery trial? Right? Do not be afraid of the fiery trial as, as, as if something as strange is happening to you. You know that the words fiery trial, if you translate them more literally um, from Greek into English, um, it's more of a refiner's fire. That's the fiery trial. It is a refiner's fire. And if you don't know what a refiner's fire is, it's usually used. we got some precious metals people that come to our church here, so you might know a little more about this than I do. But for them, it was used to purify precious metals, to burn out all the junk inside of it, to take away so that it would be smooth and more precious, that, gold, that the gold would be more gold. Does that make sense? The fiery trial is the refiner's fire. It's what purifies the metal. The fire burns away the thing that's not valuable or useful, and what remains is what is precious. See, that's the point. Now, this is a hard saying, I know, because the fire that sanctifies the believer in Christ is the same fire that crushes those outside of Christ. <clears throat> it's a hard saying. This text is telling us that trial suffering separates God's people from those who are not God's people. It proves one and crushes the other. The same refining fire that, pr pr that proves and purifies his people extinguishes the rest. Now this is difficult. Let me remind you of an Old Testament passage to illustrate this. Do you remember the three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Right. So these guys <clears throat> are honorable guys. They love the Lord. Um, they're told um, to um, worship an idol, right? And they refuse to. It was a, a, an idol of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the, 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 basically the king of Babylon. Um, they had just all been taken in captivity. Jerusalem had just fell to the Babylonians. They were all um, forced as indentured slaves to go, to go into Babylon. And this is the setting of the book of Daniel. They're in slavery in Babylon, and they're told that they need to worship an idol to, that was erected in Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's honor. And they wouldn't do that. You want to know why? Because there is only one God. There is only one mediator, right? I sing better when I'm, you know, singing over there. But um, <laughs> so they don't do it because there's only one God. And they're told in the first commandment not to worship any other god, and in the second commandment not to worship an idol. So they don't do it. Nebuchadnezzar's furious. So he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do with you. I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. And not only that, I am going to make this fire way hotter than normal. Because that's how mad I am at you. This is what it says in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. He ordered the, fur the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning furnace. So here are the soldiers, or the guards, escorting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 
to the fiery furnace to throw them in. And because it's so hot, they're consumed and killed by the fire. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stumble through the front door. Then it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Did we not cast three men into the fire, he said? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound. Their shackles burned off. The fire didn't burn them. It burned off their shackles. I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus Christ, many theologians believe this. Jesus Christ, because he is God in the flesh, that means he created all things. He existed before the world created, made an appearance as an angel to these three boys and protected them in the fiery furnace. The same fire that extinguished the wicked set free the righteous. The same fire that extinguishes the wicked sets free the righteous. The same fire of your suffering as a Christian, ultimately it's death. It sets you free. Because you're in Christ. Because Jesus is in the furnace with you. And the death that should have destroyed you forever is a liberator. And you're with Christ forever and ever. The same fire that touches the wicked and extinguishes them is the same fire that liberates you forever and ever. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that wonderful? For some, it's an executioner. For others, it's a liberator. What for one is a fire of judgment, for the other is a fire of salvation. You know that in the same book, the same exact thing happens later on? The, the book of Daniel? This happens to Daniel, who the book is named after. Daniel, um, now Nebuchadnezzar, is Babylon has fallen, and Persia has conquered Babylon. So some time goes by, and, and um, history goes by in the book of Daniel. Persia takes over. There's a new king, Darius. Darius likes Daniel. Darius is a fan of Daniel. But, um, but Darius's thugs do not like Daniel, and they want to get rid of him. So they trick the king to making some stupid law, right, that he says, okay, I'll do that. But what ends up happening is they knew Daniel couldn't obey that law. The king didn't realize this. But they knew Daniel wouldn't obey that law. And because of that, the law would require that he be executed. So, so his cronies tricked the king and ended up getting Daniel thrown into a lion's den. And this is what happens. Darius throws Daniel into this lion's den, is very concerned about his welfare, and then the next day, he goes to see what's going on because he knows Daniel is a man of God. At break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. He cried out in a tone of anguish, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you? Oh, what a great question for you if you're a Christian and you are suffering. Has your God been able to deliver you? Well, let's see. You might not feel like he has, but let's see what happens to Daniel. Then Daniel said, okay, that's a good step. He speaks. That must be, mean something good, right? Is he hanging onto a tree? 
Like maybe he fought him. What's going on here? Let's find out. The Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. May my God sent his angel, right? The same angel that, that helped out the three Hebrew boys. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him. No kind in his suffering, in his trauma, in his trial, in his tragedy. It should have killed him. But no harm was found. None. Because he had trusted in his God. Oh, do you trust in your God in your trial? Do you entrust your soul to a creator that loves you? No kind of harm was found in him because he trusted in his God. And the king commanded, great victory. Isn't this fantastic? The king commands and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. You see, the same lions that proved Daniel were the same lions that proved the wicked. See? The same testing that announced Daniel innocent and righteous was the same testing that announced the wicked guilty. So suffering, friends, what I'm getting at here, suffering is purging for the Christian, but suffering ultimately is a microcosm. We experience trial in life because God is pointing us, one of the things he's doing is he's pointing to us to a bigger trial, a bigger trauma, a bigger suffering, all that all the suffering should point to, and that is separation from God. That's the ultimate suffering. That's the suffering under the suffering. You see? What earthly temporal suffering points to is a final suffering, a final and just punishment on anyone that remains outside of relationship with God because of sin. We've lost our health, a loved one, a spouse. Will we lose our own soul too? Forever to be separate from God. Friends, the only way to be purged by the fire rather than extinguished by the fire is for you to be righteous and innocent. That's what these stories tell us. But there's a problem in Scripture. There are none righteous, not one. None righteous, not one. Except for one, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is righteous. He is Daniel. He is the fourth man. He is what these stories point to. You see, friends, he's the greater Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's the fourth man in the furnace with us and because he's there with us by faith the fire that should extinguish us sets us free because christ by faith when we trust in him because we trust in him the fire of god's of of suffering and the punishment of separation from god that should ultimately crush us through death which is the final separation from god 
But rather, because we're in Christ, because there's a fourth man in the furnace, death liberates us and brings us home with our maker. Amen? Amen. Isn't that great? We're free. It purifies us. It burns off our shackles. The lions that are supposed to eat us are our pillow to sleep on. You see, Jesus was asleep in the stern during a horrible storm where everyone should have died. But he was asleep because he knew that the Creator had a purpose. The Creator was using suffering to save. Do you believe it this morning? Will you entrust your soul to a faithful Creator? I hope so. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask for your favor and for your help. We ask, Lord, that in difficult times we would remember that all of those difficult times point to the most difficult time that Christ endured when he said, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he endured that so we would never have to hear those words. So that, we, that our God, our Father, our creator, creator would use the wickedness of man, the fallenness of this world for his glory and for our salvation. God, purge us and we will be clean. Wash us and we'll be whiter than snow. Friend, if you're here, if you're a Christian, enduring suffering, I want to pray for you. Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Nobody sees. Can you let me know? Can you raise your hand if your heart is broken so that I can pray for you right now? We've got a few hands going up. God, you see these hearts. You know their confusion. You know the doubts. You know the pain, the humiliation. I pray, God, somehow break through their darkness with your light. I pray that the Creator the one who made them, would assure them that they, that they are loved and that there is a reason. The same things that crushed them crushed Jesus so that they might be delivered from that crush. Oh God, I pray, Lord, for deliverance, for healing, bless them. Oh friend, if you don't know Jesus, can I invite you to invite a fourth man into your furnace with you? Don't be in it alone. Invite Christ and your shackles will fall off. And if that's you this morning, can you raise your hand? You want to know Christ. You want to put your faith and trust in him for the first time. God, you see the hearts of these people and you know where everyone's at, no matter where we're at. I pray, Lord, help us to trust the fourth man. We love you and ask you now that you bless us as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.